Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. So this summer we have been going through the third set of ten psalms and each week having a new setting of the psalm musically uh, given to us today by Jody and his daughters and uh, then having a sermon on whatever psalm that they've written a new setting for. So this week in our study of God's word we turn to Psalm 29. So if you'd open there with me please. Psalm 29. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calve and strips the forest bare. And in his temple, everything cries holy or glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. This is the word of the Lord. So there are different psalms that are occasioned by different views of the... Of the uh, hello. Sorry, I got... Hello to everybody. <laughs> After the first service, I said to somebody that there's a reason why pastors often will preach looking at the back wall like Jonathan Edwards, because it's so much easier. But I said, well, it is, it is. You know what I'm talking about. He's retired. And so you look up and you see people that you love and you haven't seen in a while and you go, hi. Hi. Anyhow, you know how different psalms are occasioned by different parts of nature. And so if we go to Psalm 8 and we read Psalm 8, we see that that's occasioned by David looking at the heavens and the stars and the moon. He says, verse 3 in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. And so that's where that psalm comes out of. The sun is the inspiration for Psalm 19, parts of it, where we read in verse 5, the sun is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So last week, Mary Lee and I were actually able to spend a couple of days together uh, not working, and so we went to the beach, and I lay on the beach, and Ever since then, I've been rubbing up against door jams because of the piercing heat and blazing glory of the sun. 
Well, when David saw the sun and the fact that there's nowhere to escape its, its, its light and its heat, what did he do? Well, what David did was he wrote a psalm of praise to God. Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. Telling is what? Grammatically, what is it? Come on. It is a present participle. So another way of saying it was, the heavens never stop telling the glory of God. The heavens are telling the glory of God. And their expanse, the firmament, is declaring, again, a present part of it, declaring the work of his hands. The heaven is telling, and the expanse is declaring. Day to day, Psalm 19.2, day to day, so again, what's being emphasized is the constancy of the testimony, Day-to-day pours forth speech, and night-to-night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. This is the world we live in. This is my Father's world. And there's no place to escape the glory of God, except, as it happens, in the modern university which specializes in escaping the glory of God. And I have a degree from a modern university, and I'm smart, and I'm not bitter. So don't make this personal. It's not personal. I have rarely had as much fun as studying at a modern university. Okay? Study declares the glory of God. And so it's wonderful to read and to discover that even those who don't know God testify to God. Even when you go into a modern university, like Massachusetts Institute of Technology, (laughs) okay? And you choose a godless professor who studies words and language. He's a linguist. And you read him. He can't help himself. He testifies to the glory of God. And in point of fact, when he says there is no God, after testifying to the glory of God in his discipline, He is testifying to God's glory by being a fool. Because the fools praise God as much as the wise men do. The fool praises God by making a huge demonstration of his pride. And as he glorifies himself in his erudition, he testifies to the glory of God because God is glorified by the judgment and the stupidity of the wicked. God's not just glorified with a rose that smells good. God's glorified with a rose that doesn't smell at all. And it's not because that rose is prettier than the one that smells good. 
when you smell a rose and it doesn't have a smell, that testifies to the glory of God. Because then you think, well, so, isn't that something that God made a rose that didn't smell good? Right? And so a man who studies the pattern of language and writes a whole book of it, explaining that it's instinctive, that it's, that it's an instinctive man that you can't repress, you can't remove. I'm talking about Steven Pinker. And he writes this thick book, and he goes on and on and on about what happens with blind or deaf children who grow up in a home with deaf parents. Guess what? Their, la- their language comes out of them in their fingers. And the way they have sign language with each other, and then he says, and the sign language is not see, spot, run, run, spot, run, but it's extremely sophisticated, grammatically. They're fingers. And then he tells you there's no God. And that glorifies God. It's glorious for a brilliant professor of linguistics at MIT to refuse to ascribe glory to God. Because you know that God had to have done that. Now, I know that's scandalous to many of you. But there's nothing in this world that God hasn't done. Nothing. Even how God uses our sins in our lives glorifies him. It's amazing. I don't know what I would ever say to anybody in counseling if it weren't for my sin. It's, it's, it's often my sin that is the greatest gift to the people that I counsel. Because I can say to them, no, been there, done that, don't! <laughs> you know, I said that to a young man yesterday who's vain. Been there, done that, don't! Yesterday, I was talking to a guy who's a professor of linguistics here at Indiana University. I was telling him about this book I'd read by Pinker, and I recommend it to every one of you young mothers. You want to understand your children and how they've developed language. Read the book. It's unbelievable in its testimony to the glory of God. And I said to this professor, he had not read the book. He knew of the man. And I said to him, you know, I said... The most notable thing about the book is actually not how it explains how language develops. The most notable thing about the book is the fact that he is able to sustain across about 400 pages an absolute refusal to acknowledge the glory of God. That's the most notable thing about his book. Somehow I don't think he intended that to be the most notable thing about his book. He goes on and on and on about the glory of God, and he says there is no glory in God. This is evolution, you know? It's like, oh, yeah, 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 this is evolution. Yep, 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 yep. <laughs> and you don't want to laugh at him because you, it probably would hurt his feelings. He's now at Harvard. He left MIT and went just across town. Okay? And the Bible says what? Language everywhere. 
language, irrepressible. One of the most fascinating parts of the book was where he talked about the language of inner city blacks, okay? And he said, we whites who have studied grammar and proper usage and have read, you know, manuals of style and had browbeating grammar teachers in in elementary school, he said, we can list all of the ways that inner city blacks speak wrong. Lee. Okay? And he said, but you know something? If you take their language and you superimpose on it, the pattern of language that's universal, they actually are right and we're wrong. Their language is grammatically proper. If we take proper as indicating what is universally true. And I love that testimony, the glory of God. God is no respecter of persons. And you get done reading this book, and he's sustained 400 pages of denying the glory of God and refusing to ascribe to God the glory due his name. And at the end, I said to this professor last night, I said, you know, okay, you ready? You all ready? Okay, here it comes. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were created by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness comprehendeth it not. In other words, before he ever put down the first word of his book, we could have just quoted the beginning of John chapter 1, and it would have been everything he said. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't take away the Word from God. What did God do? Come on, what did he do? He spoke. Who said that? Thank you, Andrew. He spoke. He said what? He said, let there be light. And there was light. God spoke. In the beginning was the Word the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands day to day pours forth speech and night to night reveals knowledge there is no speech nor are there words their voice is not heard and so Psalm 29 says this it says ascribe to the Lord O sons of the mighty ascribe to the Lord glory and strength Now, what does it mean to ascribe? It means to acknowledge, to designate, to point to, to attribute to, ascribe to the Lord. You can't ascribe and be pointing at yourself. All right? It's exterior. It's out. It's there. It's not here. But the truth is that intellectuals, almost to a man and a woman, can't help themselves. They have to point at themselves. And they think they're pointing at themselves most excellently when they least attribute anything to God. The better an intellectual is doing his job, the less 
he will allow for there being any possibility of God taking glory and praise. Now, do you think that I'm making a negative judgment of the modern enterprise of higher education? Do you think it comes out of some personal animus I have against intellectuals, right? Do you think that I'm insecure? Do you think that I just wish I had a PhD? No, seriously, do you? Is this, you know how Facebook, everything's personal. There's nothing that isn't personal on Facebook. And so if I say anything, it's because I'm insecure, I'm jealous, I'm poor, I'm fat, I'm old, whatever. But it has to reside in, you know, it has to reside in something about me that's sick. There's no such thing as a judgment, and there's no such thing as a principle. Do you understand what I'm saying? On Facebook, no principles, just the personal, the political, the insecure, the, you know what I'm saying? Okay, so is this sermon about me? All right, I know some of you think it is, but let me read to you from John Calvin, who was writing how many years ago? 500 years ago. Was John Calvin a stupid man who was insecure and wished he had a higher education degree? If you know about John Calvin, one thing you would not accuse him of is being insecure among intellectuals. Okay? It's just not something. You might not like his doctrine, but you're not going to accuse him of being stupid and insecure and bitter at people who are smart. All right? And here's what he says. He's commenting on this psalm we're studying today. And he says this. He says, philosophers think not that they have reasoned skillfully enough about inferior causes. Well, okay, now I have to translate it into our language. Philosophers, in other words, academics, in other words, intellectuals, in other words, Steven Pinker, all right? Steven Pinker doesn't think that he has been smart enough, reasoned skillfully, that he's been smart enough about inferior causes. Now, what are inferior causes? Well, Calvin's talking about the intellectual, and now he talks as a Christian because he's switched vocabulary. Inferior causes is nothing that Steven Pinker would ever say. Inferior causes are what Christians refer to secondary causes as. So if God determines that I am going to stand on the floor instead of the platform, God will make me do this. Well, he could make me fall, and that would have a variety of purposes. One of them would be to humble me and to get me on the floor. But let's say he just wants to get me on the floor. This is a secondary cause. Primary cause is God says, go to the floor. Secondary cause is my brain says, take a step down, another step down. Calvin, when he says inferior causes, is referring to secondary causes. Now, why would Calvin call secondary causes, inferior causes. What are they inferior to? They're inferior to the will of God. They're inferior to God. What are secondary causes? Secondary causes are causes that are not what? Primary. And so what is the primary cause? The primary cause is spelled capital P, capital C. It's God. 
Now, what is God the primary cause of? He's the primary cause of everything. Do you remember what Paul testifies in the Areopagus in Athens? He says, in him, we what? We live and we move and we have our being. You know, the psalmist says, where can we flee from his presence? If we go down to the bottom of the sea, he's there. If we climb to the highest mountains, he's there. The psalmist says, is anything hidden from him? No, he sees everything. How deep does he see? He sees into the motives that are so deep in us that we don't even see them ourselves. You know, you've had this experience of talking to people. You can see their sinful motives. You know, it's as obvious as obvious can be. And you just sit there thinking, I wish this person had a little bit of self-awareness. It's so embarrassing. Right? Have you had this experience, you know? And you say to them, uh, 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 dude, dude, um, yikes, dude, you know? Have you ever had that experience where you haven't really wanted to repeat back to the person what you're seeing because it's so embarrassing, right? You've had that experience, right? You know, typically it happens with family members, (laughs) you know? But you don't say, dude, to your dad. Usually it's dads who are the ones that don't get it, you know. Everybody else at the table gets it. (laughs) Excuse me. I'm (laughs) laughing at myself, you know. It's like everybody else gets it. I don't get it, you know. Philosophers think not that they've reasoned skillfully. Philosophers, intellectuals, don't think they've done their work right. Intellectuals, academics, don't think that they're really smart until what? until they separate God very far from his works. Academics don't think they've done their job right until they've completely removed God from everything they're studying. That's what he's saying. Now, is that an accurate depiction of the academic enterprise 500 years ago when Calvin wrote this? Well, since we don't live then, we can't really argue. You know, because you didn't live 500 years ago. Okay, so if this was accurate about Calvin and the university of his time, what is true of our university today? Has there been a reformation? Now does the university exist to show the finger of God, the truth of God, the revelation of God, and the glory of God in its work? You may say that Stephen Pinker is an anomaly. He's, He's unusual for academics. Would anybody, anybody here argue that? They gave him a promotion from MIT to Harvard. And what about Noam Chomsky? Anybody here ever heard of this dude? I mean, Noam Chomsky doesn't just deny the existence of God. He hates God. Okay, anybody that knows Noam Chomsky, (laughs) the dude's like uh, quite the spectacle, you know, and he wants to be, okay? Calvin says, philosophers think not that they've reasoned skillfully enough about inferior causes unless they separate God very far from his works. And then he says this. He says, it is a diabolical science. However, which fixes our contemplations on the works of nature and turns them away from God. 
It's a diabolic science that focuses us on what God has done in this world and at the same time turns us away from God. Now, what does diabolical mean? Well, this last week we were in an elders meeting and we had asked one of the men who was present to give us devotions. And this man is, does not speak English as his primary language. As a matter of fact, he used Alex to translate. He turned to Alex every few seconds. What, 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 and Alex would say, yeah, yeah, that, or Alex would translate for him. And at one point, he wanted to say Satan in English, but instead he said what? Diablo. The devil in Spanish. Here's what Calvin says. He says, it is a diabolical science, however, which fixes our contemplations on the works of nature and turns them away from God. He goes on and he says, nothing is more preposterous. What does preposterous mean? I always use a larger word to define a word when my kids ask me at the dinner table, you know, what does preposterous mean? And I'd say ludicrous. <laughs> you know? So what is preposterous? Insane. Insanely stupid. All right? There's nothing more preposterous than when we meet with mediate, mediate causes, so mediate, secondary, inferior causes, when we meet with mediate causes, however many, to be stopped and retarded by them as by so many obstacles from approaching God. Now, that's not a word you know either, retarded. Uh, <laughs> and so I hesitate to define it because you'll think that John Calvin doesn't know the difference between uh, education and special education. Okay, everybody with me? Retarded was a word that used to be used to refer to somebody who had not been able to develop to the normal span of what their capacity should have been as a human being. And so he, Calvin says that when we focus on the immediate causes, when we focus on God's thunder, on his lightning, on earthquakes, on floods, when we, th uh, when we focus on the way a foot has so many bones in it, how the, the ligaments work, when we focus on uh, the construction of a building, and do not, and, and because of our focus, we turn away from God and we don't look at God. He says this is... This is to be retarded from the purpose of everything that God's made. He says this is absolutely preposterous. And then Calvin says this. This is all on this chapter, and this is all 500 years ago. He says, even philosophers who appeared to approach nearest to the knowledge of God... So now he's saying, okay, forget the dudes that are studying the spiders and the plate tectonics and language linguistics. Now let's move to academics who study the things of God. All right? So say, for instance, they're theologians, they're, they're exegetes, they're, they're, they're professors of hermeneutics. All right? They're academics whose specialty are the things of God. And they claim that they're approaching closest to the things of God. He says, even philosophers who appeared to approach nearest to the knowledge of God contributed nothing whatever that might truly glorify him. 
what a perfect description of the academics that I've studied under who teach biblical exegesis and hermeneutics. And they refer to the Bible as the text. That's what they call it. They call it the text. It's like it's a cadaver and they're in med school ripping it open to learn what's inside. Listen, I hope you understand what I'm saying. This is not me being a joker. This is what our Bibles are today. There are scholars who translate the Bible in such a way as to keep it from offending us, keep it from stinking. And Calvin says this, he says, even those who approach most closely to the knowledge of God contributed nothing whatever that might glorify him. And so when a scholar translates scripture in such a way that it removes the things that stink in scripture, and there are a lot of them, why does he do that? You know very well why he does it. He does it because he doesn't even think of the authorship of the Holy Spirit. He thinks of what other scholars are going to think of him if he renders accurately into the receptor language what the Holy Spirit inspired. It's all about him. And if you read The Fish in Your Ear by a professor at Princeton who's a pagan, all right, and it's on translation. He's, award, he's been given translation awards for his work. And in his book, and he's a pagan, he talks about the scandal of translators molesting the word of God because they don't want people to think that they would ever speak the way the Holy Spirit has spoken. And he's a pagan! Everything today is about us. What we want, what we want people to think of us, our reputation, even our witnessing is all about us. We don't trust the word of God in our witnessing. What we think is, what I have to do is convince people that I'm a nice guy. And if I'm a nice guy, are you with me? If I'm a really nice guy, even though I hold some pretty gnarly positions on some issues that some people somewhere sometimes are talking about. You know what I'm talking about. Sex. Even if I hold the position that God made man and woman for lifelong monogamy, even if I hold this gnarly position, if I'm smiling and nice and don't offend people in the way that I, you know, go through the lines and, 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 and don't honk my horn at the roundabouts and, you know, dress without, uh, without showing that I'm, you know, backward, you know, in the way I dress, you know, Avoid wearing things that are hackneyed, you know, stuff like that. Maybe if I'm really nice and don't offend people, then they'll let me bring them to church. They'll accept an invitation to church. And then Tim can just get them. And everybody knows he's a you-know-what. But, but he's, 
He's the man that does God's work. That dude. And I'll just sit here next, and, and they'll remember how nice I've been all week. And poor Tim gets up. <laughs> He's like, dude, have you done any heavy lifting? I remember one time I came home for dinner, and there's Taylor, our youngest. And, you know, he's like, <laughs> you know, and, you know, and no napkin, and talking with his mouth full, and reaching for the food, and on and on and on. And finally, one dinner time, I looked at my wife. I said, Mary Lee, could you please please use the two meals a day that you get him to do some of the work. Don't worry, I love my wife. Okay, you don't have to worry about us. You guys, do some of the heavy lifting. And you say, how? How? And I say to you, ascribe to the Lord. The glory do his name. Would you please ascribe to the Lord the glory do his name? Would you please, when you're sitting in that laboratory doing your studies, talk about God and his glory in your biochemistry? And when you're a physician and you're examining your patients, would you please describe to them how sophisticated their feet are? And how God doesn't make their body to be abused. And use the word God. And if they complain about you, say, well, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't know what else to say. You know, when you're writing on Facebook, would you please quote Scripture? And you say, well, if I quote scripture, everybody's just going to stop reading me. And I say, yep, yep, you have inherited the unfaithfulness of 50 years of cowardly evangelicals. And so guess what? The Bible has no authority in our culture anymore. You know why? Well, have you ever noticed that when you don't use an authority, the authority dies? Do you understand the concept? A father who doesn't use his authority has none. He can't sit there in bed at night thinking, I have so much authority that I don't use. No, it's gone. Whatever authority he doesn't use, immediately authority, just like every other part of nature, it hoards a vacuum. And so authority is always exercised everywhere, right? Is anybody in America today feeling like there's less authority harassing us, you know? Now listen to this one more time. Even philosophers who appeared to approach nearest to the knowledge of God contributed nothing whatever that might truly glorify him. All that they say concerning religion is not only frigid. Now you all know what frigid means, right? Cold. You don't ever want to be cold because God hates coldness. All right? He says, all that they say concerning religion is not only frigid, but for the most part, insipid. Now, what does insipid mean? Samuel, do you know? Ha ha, gotcha. 
Okay, insipid is when you come in and you've been sweating like a dog outside because of how hot it is. And I know dogs don't sweat, but let's just, let's just step over that. And you're starving for a drink and you're hot. And your mother gives you iced tea or lemonade that's at room temperature. That's insipid. Okay, now you know the word insipid. Insipid is when you have eviscerated from the thing that you're consuming the very part of it that's most delightful. Okay? In other words, philosophers, when they do their work, if it's theological work, they do it in such a way as to be cold and to be boring. And let me ask you, what about God is boring? What about God is boring? Is God boring when he disciplines you? Is that what you think? Boy, this is boring. How about when you go to Longwood Gardens out on the East Coast and you see the azaleas in springtime? Is that boring? How about when you looked at the meteor shower last night? Was that boring? How about when you kiss your children? Is that boring? There's nothing about this life that is boring. Nothing. Boring is what you get when you make a concerted effort to remove God from your life. And you want to know boring people. You talk to somebody who's proud. You can predict everything that comes out of his mouth. You know what he's going to say before he ever says it, because he's proud. But you take a humble Christian, <laughs> you never have the slightest clue what's going to come out of their mouth, because they're thinking biblically. And because what matters to them is the glory of God. And all of a sudden, we have ignition. We have Rita Coffee. My friend brilliant but humble. And man, you put brilliance and humility together, you know who that is? That's Vern Poitras, professor out at Westminster Seminary. He's humble and he's brilliant. And I tell you, there's nobody more fascinating to talk to. You know, when you take a philosopher and he's neither cold nor insipid, then what he does is he has a much superior knowledge of God's work and his creation than you have. And man, you can't stop talking. Well, you don't talk to them. You ask them questions and you listen. And it's fascinating. Learning in the glory of God is glorious. It's like a gardener with roses. I mean, how many ways can you describe the glory of roses? Honestly. There's them that prick and them that don't. There's them that smell and them that don't. There's them that get every disease that there is and are scrawny in May 30th. And there are those that never get diseases and just continue to produce. There's them that are sophisticated hybrids and there's them that are really old school, just kind of show it all out there. There's small ones and big ones. There's every color in the rainbow. There's climbers, and there's hunker-downers. 
And this is just roses? Have you ever read a rose catalog? And this is just roses. You ever had a gardener argue over which string bean to plant? You ever gone to May's greenhouse and decided which, which tomato you're going to buy? You got the heirloom, you got the, the burpees, you've got the low acid, the high acid, you've got the yellow, you've got the red, you've got the early bloomers or early fruiters, you've got the old fruiters, you've got the, the, uh, you got the ones that are good for canning, the ones that are good for salads, you've got the ones that are good for Mexican food. And they're not really tomatoes, I don't think. <laughs> Tomatillas. <laughs> now listen. God's not boring. What's boring is when we remove his handiwork from creation and we refuse to ascribe the glory that's due his name. And we can't do that. We can't do that. I cannot fix in 50 minutes every Sunday morning your God was living and talking the other how many hours a week? I can't do it. If you don't ascribe glory to God in the way you live and speak the rest of the week, you're not going to be good at worship Sunday morning. If your musicians who lead you in worship had not practiced during the week, what would they sound like? If the musicians have to practice ascribing glory to God, why don't you not have to, or why do you not have to? You need to testify with nature. Nature never is silent. It never stops telling the glory of God, okay? We're all agreed on that, right? We all see it. Okay, so what about you? Aren't you natural? Don't you want to be natural? Right? Don't you want to buy your food at Lucky's? Don't you want to go to the east side and hang out with the braided armpit crowd? Okay, I didn't really mean that one. <laughs> you know, the Prius crowd, how's that? Does that work a little bit better? Okay, you know who I'm talking about, everybody that thinks that buying food is a religious experience. <laughs> everybody you'll never find at Walmart or McDonald's. Listen, anybody who sees the hand of God is an oddity today. But it's not an oddity in nature. <laughs> the people who are really natural are Christians because Christians are in sync with nature. We never stop testifying to the glory of God. It is what our lips are for. It is what music is for. How incongruous is it for people at IU Music School or Jacobs to sing some of the glorious anthems to the glory of God from past centuries and to be godless? To have absolutely no knowledge of the God that they sing his glory of. 
It's just the abuse of music. But when you have a godly woman who's standing, and you've got this dude here, and you've got that woman there, and it's St. Matthew's passion. And up there is the musician who only glorifies himself. And right there in front of you is a godly woman. And she gets up and she sings that solo in St. Matthew's Passion. And there's perfect synchronicity because her heart and her mouth are one. I'll never forget it. Never. I was wounded and cornered and angry and hurt and defeated, utterly defeated. And I was healed. Jody and his precious children, every single time they sing, they heal you. Why? Because Jody ascribes to the Lord the glory due his name. It's very simple. And it's the command of God in our text today. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. If you're going to write a thesis at IU, would you please begin it with all glory to God? If you're going to play a sport, would you please point to him when you score? If you love your wife, would you please testify to everyone around you that she's a gift from God? Because the Bible says houses and wealth are an inheritance from your parents, but a, but a prudent wife is a gift of God. Would you begin to see God in your life and begin to ascribe to him the glory due his name? Don't be embarrassed. It's a conspiracy. I mean, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, heaven forbid, that I would see the hand of Satan in all of the denial of the glory of God. I mean, I don't really think Satan controls anything. And I almost feel like I'm being sacrilegious saying that. Of course it's a conspiracy when you don't open your mouth to glorify God. How many things do you have to glorify God for? How much time do you have? How much time do you have? Here's George. How old are you? 86. George is 86. Stand up for a second, would you please? Come here. Now some of you will not be able to see this, but let me show you. How thick is that leg? It's not thick at all. Nope. He's 86 years old, and do you know, he came in my office the other day, and he told me what he does. What does he do? He goes out into his scrubland behind his house, and he pulls up trees, and he digs, and he clears it, and he's scheming about how he's going to be able to burn everything that he's cleared from his land and he's 86 years old. He tells me how he gets very hot and goes in to get a drink. Now, I'm not being sentimental in, in a bit, okay? Is that honoring to God? This man at 86 is working, 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 working. Because that's what God made him to do. And his work glorifies God. He loves his garden. George, if you get him started talking about the food he eats, he'll never stop. Some of his theories, I think, are pretty crazy. <laughs> Some of them are smart. But the thing is, he studies. 
Thank you, brother. Love you. Love you. The Bible says, ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Everywhere around us are people that testify to God's glory. Little people that we never notice. Big people who glorify God because of their pride. <laughs> Rich people, poor people, stupid people, smart people. And yeah, there are stupid people, you know? But they glorify God. Often, have you, I mean, okay, I'm not, okay. Have you ever known and loved somebody who has Down syndrome? Have you noticed the unbelievable joy that they have in life? It's absolutely beautiful. And yet what? We're going to abort them in the womb because they don't fit into the standards of what we think glorifies God? Huh? Spina bifida babies slowly declining because they're all being killed in the womb. Okay? Listen, once you begin to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name, you're going to be completely unpredictable, and you're going to be a good friend. And everybody's going to want to be around you. Even if they deny your God, they will love you. Not because you're nice, but because all of a sudden you're interesting. <laughs> I've always said to those of you who are students, write about God. Write scripturally. Think Christianly. And you'll get A's. I guarantee it. You'll get A's. And you say, uh-uh, because they don't like God. And I say, yeah, I just got done telling you they don't like God. I know that. So why will you get A's? Because can you imagine how boring it is to be a professor in a politically correct university? You get one paper that's not politically correct, of course you're going to give it an A. Because it's the only one that you didn't have to fight falling asleep while you graded it. <laughs> you know? You're going to look at her and go, dude, who's this guy? You know, I never forget doing this in an English class at UW, you know? And I just fought that professor every step of the way. It was one of these Bible as literature classes where it eviscerates the inspiration of Scripture of God and, and then shows you all the mistakes. So I just argued with the guy all the time. I was very respectful, but I just argued because I kept having this idea that the people in the classes were sheep and that this shepherd was going to destroy their souls unless somebody fought him. Right? That's, that's all I thought. So I fought him and fought him and fought him and fought him. Yeah, Tim, you know. Okay, now the dissenting opinion, you know. There's Tim, you know. And so at the end of the class, I went to his office. I don't remember whether it was to pick up my test, my paper. I don't know. He said, hey, Tim, come on in here. So I went in. He said, listen. He said, I've loved having you in class. And he said, I would really like to have the opportunity to give you a recommendation or a reference. Would you please use me for that? I couldn't believe it. You know, I'd fought him the whole time, respectfully. But I just fought him and fought him and fought him. And guess what? I was an exotic animal. I kept him awake, and he liked me. Try it, those of you that are at IU. Try it. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Now, I want to end with one thing, and that is I want to read to you one of my favorite sections from Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor um, in colonial America. He started out at Northampton, went to Yale. Yale had just been started because Harvard was going liberal. 
And so when he got done, he was hired to be the successor to his maternal grandpa, Solomon's daughter. And he writes a personal narrative about how he came to faith. And it's very interesting that his writing about how he came to faith is really an account of how he made his peace with all the things that God does, which are, um, uh, how would I say it? What would you say, David? Um, Okay. All the things God does that are judgments instead of mercy. Are you with me? All the things that God does that are scary and that make you realize that he's not waiting to, to, to find out what I think of him. Are you, are you with me? And Jonathan Edwards just went back and forth on this stuff. You know, like, how could God do that? And how could God do that? And why would God do that? So in other words, he spent his life judging God. Anything that didn't conform to his view of what God should be, he judged it. And so there's this battle going on and on and on and on and on with Jonathan Edwards. Then finally, Jonathan Edwards comes to a point one day where he's walking through a field thinking about all this, where he says this. He says... uh, He says, now, does anybody know what he said, any of you? (laughs) This is really interesting. Nobody knows. David, do you know? He says, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So he's been judging God, and then one day he says, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And guess what? His life changed. Why? Well, because he stopped judging God and began to love him. And loving him, he began to trust him. And he started by trusting the blood of Jesus to cleanse him from all his sins. And so I'm picking up the narrative where he, he has just gone through this uh, experience of, of making his peace with God, right? All right? And he writes this. He says, I walked abroad alone. So in other words, he took walks all by himself in a solitary place in my father's pasture for contemplation, to meditate, to ruminate, to cogitate. As I was walking there and looking upon the sky and clouds, there came into my mind so sweet a sense of the glorious majesty and grace of God as I know not how to express. It just washed over him, the glory of God. Just washed over him. I seem to see them both in a sweet conjunction. I seem to see them both together. What's he talking about? He says, majesty and meekness. Now look, those are two things we wouldn't put together, right? We wouldn't put together meekness and majesty, right? Donald Trump is majestic, but not so much meek. Come on, laugh. It's funny. It's not a political statement. It's funny, right? 
We don't think of majestic and meekness being, you know, together. He says, I put them together, joined together. It was a sweet and gentle and holy majesty. Sweet, gentle, sweet majesty. Mm, not so much. We wouldn't put them together. Gentle majesty, nah, not so much. Wouldn't put them together. Sweet and gentle and holy majesty, and also a majestic meekness. You see what he's doing here? He's weaving, stinging like a bitter, floating like a butterfly, stinging like a bee. Majesty, meekness, all right? And also a majestic meekness and an awful sweetness. You see what he's doing here, you know? It was, it was an awful sweetness, all right? See, this is faith. Faith always speaks like this. Faith bows before God and trembles and kisses him. In the godly, fear and love embrace. Okay? A high and great and holy gentleness. After this, my sense of divine things gradually increased and became more and more lively and had more of that inward sweetness. The appearance of everything was altered, changed. There seemed to be, as it were, a calm, sweet appearance of divine glory in almost everything. He began to see God in everything. God's excellency, his wisdom, his purity and love seemed to appear in everything. In the sun, the moon, the stars, in the clouds and blue sky, in the grass, flowers, trees, in the water, and in all nature. And it used to greatly fix my mind. In other words, I couldn't stop thinking about it. I often used to sit and view the moon for a long time, and in the day spent much time in viewing the clouds and skies to what? To behold the sweet glory of God in these things. In the meantime, singing forth with a low voice my contemplations of the Creator and Redeemer. And scarce anything among all the works of nature was so sweet to me as thunder and lightning. The sweetest part of creation to him was thunder and lightning. That's what this whole psalm is about. The voice of the Lord. It's thunder. It's lightning. Nothing was as sweet to me as thunder and lightning. Formerly, nothing had been so terrible to me. Before, I used to be uncommonly terrified with thunder and to be struck with terror when I saw a thunderstorm rising. But now, on the contrary, it rejoiced me. I felt God, if I may so speak, at the first appearance of a thunderstorm, and I used to take the opportunity at such times to fix myself in order to view the clouds and see the lightnings play and hear the majestic and awful voice of God's thunder, which oftentimes was exceedingly entertaining, leading me to sweet contemplations of my great and glorious God. While thus engaged, it always seemed natural for me to sing or chant forth my meditations, or to speak my thoughts in soliloquies with a singing voice. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty, 
Do you know why it says sons of the mighty? Because it's the mighty that need to be told to ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. The mighty refuse to do that. And so he's specifically singling out the tall, the strong, the rich, the powerful. Ascribe to the Lord, O sons of the mighty. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his, to his name. Worship the Lord in holy array. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The voice, the Lord is over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. Yes, the Lord breaks in pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord hews out flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer to calf. See the juxtaposition here? You know, you have the mountains dancing as the voice of the Lord, and then you have the voice of the Lord making the little deer give birth to her fawn. And strips the forest bare. What juxtaposition? The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth to the fawn and strips the forest bare. This is God. And in his temple, everything says, glory, glory. Everything says glory. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. The Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people with peace. And so you think, if this is the God that we love, if this is the God that all nature testifies to, is he going to have difficulties dealing with the things in your life that are not peaceful? And the answer is no. He has no difficulty. Nothing is impossible with God. With God, North Korea is nothing. With God, the Supreme Court is nothing. With God, death is nothing. Death, be not proud. Death, thou shalt die. Now, have I ended? Because that's the summa. That's the top trouble that we face in life. No, death is not the top trouble in life we face. No. There's one left, and what is that? The final thing that God has no trouble handling is your guilty conscience. Because after death comes judgment. And God has dealt with that by shedding the blood of his own son so that you may be washed in that blood and stand before the throne of God dressed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ.
And so you have nothing to fear. God is the God of peace. Jesus says that he gives us peace and that it's not as the world gives it to us. And he tells us, don't be afraid. So live your life ascribing to God the glory due his name. Don't be afraid. Yes, you're a sinner. If the truth be told, probably the most significant reason all of us don't ascribe to God the glory due his name is because of our sin. You know, sin with me is the thing that most consistently keeps me from giving glory to God because I think, well, a sinner like I can't give glory to God and please him, and everybody will laugh at me. You know, because I'm such a sinner, how can I ascribe glory to God? Are you with me? God delights in the praises of his people, and his people are all dirty sheep. And I mean dirty. And so ascribe to God the glory to his name, okay? Don't give in to the accusations of the evil when he's a liar. God delights in the testimony of your lips to his glory. All nature sings, shouldn't you too? Hey, 